This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Today's political extremism has roots in the past. The organization that did more than any other conservative group to propel today's extremist takeover of the American right is the John Birch Society. That's according to the new book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. My guest is the author, historian Matthew Dalek. The society was known for its opposition to the civil rights movement, its anti-Semitism, its willingness to harass and intimidate its political enemies, and for spreading conspiracy theories. Communist plots were alleged to be behind many things the Birchers opposed, from the U.N., to teaching sex education in schools, and putting fluoride in the water supply. The group was founded in secret in 1958 by the wealthy, retired candy manufacturer Robert Welch, whose candies included sugar babies, junior mints, and pom-poms. The people Welch first invited to join the society were also wealthy white businessmen, including the Koch brothers' father, Fred Koch, Another decisive period for the American right is the subject of an earlier Dalek book called The Right Moment, Ronald Reagan's First Victory, and the Decisive Turning Point in American Politics. Dalek is a professor of political management at George Washington University. His new book is dedicated to presidential historian Robert Dalek, who Matthew Dalek describes as a great historian, but an even better father. Matthew Dalek, welcome to Fresh Air. Give us a a brief description of the John Birch Society. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, The John Birch Society was a group devoted to fighting anti-communism that they said was inside the United States. It, at its peak, uh, had about 60 to 100,000 members, and it combined wealthy manufacturers and business people and elites with upwardly mobile uh, suburbanites. And they viewed themselves essentially as shock troopers trying to educate the public about the alleged communist conspiracy uh, that that they said was destroying the United States. 60,000 to 100,000 people doesn't sound like very much. So they were much more influential than their numbers. Yeah. Well, one of the points of the book is that time and again, the activism, the money, the energy can be much greater politically and culturally, much more powerful than the votes of millions of people because they could push issues onto the agenda that other people were not talking about. They could dominate news cycles. They could get people to respond to them and their ideas. Um, They could be a kind of a force, uh, as I said before, a shock force And people would have to take notice. So as Welch once said of a campaign to impeach Earl Warren, we knew we weren't going to win or it was unlikely that we were going to achieve a victory. But by the time we're finished, the enemy will know that we were there. My understanding from reading your book is that the John Birch Society combined right-wing politics with culture wars. Yes. So I argue that the Birchers helped forge an alternative political tradition on the far right and that the core ideas were an anti-establishment, apocalyptic, 
more violent mode of politics, conspiracy theories, anti-interventionism, uh, and, and a more explicit racism. And, that, uh, and then on top of that as well, they were some of the first people on the right to take up questions of, of public morality, of uh, a Christian uh, evangelical politics, uh, uh, banning sex education in schools, trying to insert what they called patriotic texts into libraries and into the classroom. Uh, and so they were quite early to even the issue of abortion. They were quite early to a set of issues that would become known as uh, the culture wars and that women at the chapter level, because they had chapters uh, of 20, roughly 20 people, uh, women at the chapter level were especially effective teachers, uh, so to speak, teaching, trying to teach the public uh, about the threats from a liberalizing a culture. Women maybe played a large role in the John Birch Society. These were not exactly feminists. Phyllis Schlafly, who was like the leader of the anti-equal rights amendment movement, she had been a Bircher. Yeah. Well, the fascinating thing is that in the 1960s, uh, Birch women in some respects capitalize on changes in the culture. It becomes more acceptable, of course, for women to go outside of the home to work not just in the workforce, but to be active politically. And so even though Phyllis Schlafly and many other women are opposing busing in the schools, opposing civil rights, they are uh, trying to take over PTAs and local school boards to take down mainstream conservatives uh, allied with uh, Richard Nixon. So their ends are essentially reactionary or harking back to a uh, an early 20th century uh, notion of culture and gender uh, identity. At the same time, they are extremely active in the struggle for power in the United States. And of course, that's one of the interesting paradoxes or contradictions at the core of the movement. So the John Birch Society was founded by wealthy white business leaders who were, you know, very successful that they owned or ran the companies that they represented. What was the business agenda of the group? Well, <laughs> it's an interesting question. They did not have an explicit business agenda, although about half of the founders came out of the National Association of Manufacturers, and they came out of this ultra-conservative wing. They had a, a fairly radical vision of the free market. They were deeply opposed to labor unions. They wanted a free enterprise system that was unencumbered by government regulations, where the New Deal essentially did not exist. And they viewed these rules and regulations as part of a creeping communist uh, plot, essentially, that was slowly moving the United States toward uh, where the Soviet Union was. And of course, they were not all uh, business executives. They were uh, interested in issues of morality and uh, changes in the culture. They wanted to fight uh, uh, the United Nations. One of their slogans was get the U.S. out of the U.N. Uh, and so they thought that the whole post-World War II international order was corrupt 
and also dominated by uh, international socialists that the, the, the United States had essentially ceded its sovereignty to these international bodies. And uh, they had a whole – and they were uh, Christian and they believed in, in imposing a Christian morality on the culture at large. So they had a, a number of ideas that were driving them but all labeled under the idea that they were communist-inspired you draw a lot of parallels between the John Birch Society and the far right today. One of the things they had in common is conspiracy theories. Um, so give us a couple of examples of outlandish conspiracy theories that they successfully spread. Well, one of the most outlandish, although I don't know how successful it was, uh, was Robert Welch alleging that someone had placed a radium tube inside the Senate seat, the upholstery of Senator Robert Taft's uh, Senate seat, the uh, Taft of Ohio. And that was the cause of the cancer that slowly killed him. Now, that was something that he wrote. He pushed on his members. I don't know that it was widely taken up. The most infamous conspiracy theory was something that Welch promoted, although he did try to later uh, walk it back to some extent or distance it from the Birch Society. And that was, of course, his charge that Dwight Eisenhower, the hero of D-Day, was a dedicated agent of the communist conspiracy. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, and this was, a, I think, a more successful example, that King and civil rights was directed by the Kremlin, that it was a a plot, a communist plot, not an organic struggle on the part of African-Americans and some white Americans to achieve racial justice and social equality. It was actually a foreign movement that uh, uh, had uh, and, and that African-Americans were being manipulated essentially by the Kremlin in support of uh, civil rights. And of course, the, the Berkshires opposed civil rights on many levels. Like their most hated decision was Supreme Court decision was Brown versus Board of Education, which mandated desegregation of schools. They opposed busing. They opposed the whole civil rights movement. Um, I mean, yeah. is it fair to just say they were racist? <laughs> well, so this was actually a huge debate in the 1960s, and it's, uh, I think, an ongoing debate about the far right. Uh, the Birch Society denied emphatically that they were racist, and they denied emphatically that they were anti-Semitic. They pointed to the existence of a handful of African-Americans and Jewish Americans who were members of the movement. And it's true that they did have some uh, Jewish Americans. They had some African-Americans in, in the Birch Society. They also occasionally tried to police their ranks. So I found memos, for example, uh, in which uh, someone had written in uh, to the Birch Society and said that the real problem in the United States is uh, the Jews and that the Jews are behind the communist plot uh, against America and basically urging the society to become more anti-Semitic. Well, someone in headquarters wrote, is this guy anti-Semitic or what? And then someone else wrote on this memo, uh, he's a wild man, drop him. And there were times where they did try to expel people, but they also drew a lot of racists and a lot of anti-Semites to their ranks. Why was that? Uh, the conspiracy theories, uh, I think, 
were of a piece with what the KKK and white supremacists were arguing. Uh, there was one uh, woman in Mississippi who wrote the Birch Society, the headquarters, and said that the biggest competitor down here in Mississippi for members is the KKK. So I argue that there was at the heart of the movement a more explicit racism. They drew energy from bigots. They had many uh, racists and anti-Semites that uh, we I document in the book who were uh, a card-carrying members, and some of the leaders were bigots as well. Another conspiracy theory I want to mention is fluoride in the water. When I was growing up, I used to hear about this and, and not really understand what is that about? Why is fluoride um, controversial? Why do some some people consider it a threat? And of course, fluoride was put in the water to prevent cavities, particularly in children. So how did that become the subject of a conspiracy theory? Well, it's such a good question. It's very hard sometimes to tease out the origins, right? Where does a theory sort of make it into the bloodstream of, in this case, the far right and the John Birch Society? In the 1950s, uh, there were uh, fears about uh, government uh, regulation of the public health, the government uh, oversight, and, and really the idea that government was going to tell you what to put in your body. And I think Robert Welch and other conspiracy theorists who, remember, conspiracy theorists usually do not have a single conspiracy theory, right? They are often conspiracy entrepreneurs. They are selling, <laughs> they're selling a product and they're very effective salespeople. And well, Welch so especially, he was a very effective salesperson. He was, look, it's no accident that a salesperson uh, headed this organization because he understood how to market a product. He understood how to pitch it. He understood how to uh, defend it, right, and to, to differentiate it. And they were actually quite insightful and innovative in that respect. And with these conspiracy theories, I think fluoride became a major because it was um, it was very mundane, right? It was and it was also unseen. So it was in the drinking water. You couldn't see it. The government was mandating it. Right. It was saying that this is good for you and to Birchers, but also other Americans uh, who were not in the society. They looked at this and they looked at it as part of a larger federal leviathan, right, a federal effort to run and ruin the lives of Americans and, and tell them basically what to put inside their bodies. And so they viewed it as. Uh, socialism run amok. Now, there were other ideas, too, that maybe this was poison in the drinking water put there by by communists. But it was uh, seen as, as one Bircher document warned, a wedge uh, issue for socialized medicine. So it's really of a, a larger piece, right? It, it, it occurs in the context of proliferating theories about the federal government and about what the federal government was doing to destroy America, to destroy American liberties. And it was also very localized. I mean, it was right in everyone's community. So it was all, in some ways a, a perfect issue for uh, the Birch Society. 
So the John Birch Society was founded in 1958 by Robert Welch, a retired and very wealthy candy manufacturer. His company made sugar babies, junior mints, pom-poms. He came from a family of Baptist preachers and farmers. He was homeschooled. What was his core mission when he started? To fight what he saw was the conspiracy, the communist conspiracy inside America. To Welch and to many of his fellow founders, they looked around them and they estimated that communists dominated 60, 70 percent of American life and major American institutions, including the federal government. So the idea was that they were going to take the fight to the communists, but not through the two-party political system. They were going to primarily take the fight through a mass education campaign because it was only by educating the masses that they felt they could save the country in time. Welch organized the John Birch Society in secret, and he invited several wealthy white men to be founding members, and he told them this is, this is totally off the record, it's totally in secret, you can't tell anybody. Why did he want to surround the founding in secrecy? Yeah, he said, uh, actually, at one point, he told them not to coordinate their hotels and to, if anyone asked, to just say they were there on business. So it was very hush-hush. Um, look, he saw communists uh, everywhere, more or less, and he did not want what he saw as his enemies and the enemies of this burgeoning movement to get wind of this this movement because he wanted this movement to be the most forceful, strongest uh, anti-communist movement in the United States, and he wanted to build it up to get it up to speed, so to speak, before the communists got wind of it and could destroy it. And so he believed that uh, it had to be uh, secret, and that's in part why they set up front groups so that they could hit the enemy as they saw it, uh, through uh, individual issues on individual campaigns without exposing the larger effort, the John Birch Society, that was behind the front. What's an example of a front group that they set up? Impeacher Warren was one of their most successful. Uh, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, they saw him as not only the architect of the Brown versus Board of Education desegregation decision, but as responsible for a number of decisions that gave the communists inroads into America, including a ban on prayer in public schools or giving more rights to criminal defendants. The Birch Society, through this front group, was able to erect billboards set all around the country that said, help save our our republic, impeach Earl Warren. And these became sort of iconic. I grew up in Brooklyn. In my neighborhood, there weren't many lawns. <laughs> so, because I know there were a lot of like lawn signs too, and Peter L. Warren. But when we would drive through the country in New York, I'd see a lot. When I was a child, I'd see a lot of those impeach Earl Warren signs. And of course, as a child, I had no idea like what is that about. Yeah, well, it, of, course, of course, they failed. Yeah. They, they they failed in impeaching him. Yeah, well, they you know Welch understood that they were not going to impeach him. But again, as he said, time and again, whether the front group was support your local police 
or Committee Against Summit Entanglements, which was an effort to oppose and disrupt the uh, Dwight Eisenhower-Nikita Khrushchev summit uh, in late 1950s uh, America. They wanted to take the fight to the enemy, let the enemy know that they were there, and they wanted to build momentum for their cause. And so the billboards became iconic because people who – it was a a firm minority of the country, but the people who felt that way could rally behind what they saw as this almost uh, shocking, uh, grassroots, uh, in-your-face campaign to – uh, completely upend the New Deal and and what was seen as at the time as the liberal consensus. Well, let me reintroduce you again. If you're just joining us, my guest is Matthew Dalek, author of the new book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. We're going to take a short break, then we'll be right back. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. Anne-Marie Baldonado here to tell you about our latest bonus episode, celebrating 36 years since a little daily talk show out of Philadelphia went national. Were you nervous? I was really, really nervous because it was like making my debut. Welcome to the premiere of the daily edition of Fresh Air. 36 years ago this month, Fresh Air became a daily national show on NPR. In our most recent bonus episode, I talked to Terry about Fresh Air's early days and how her job has changed since then. Well, I had a younger brain then, so it was just like stuffing your brain. It's like overeating, like your brain overeating every day and every night. (laughs) So Fresh Air is like being stuffed? Loosen your belt, brain. There's more. (laughs) That's in our recent bonus episode, available now for Fresh Air Plus supporters. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Let's get back to my interview with historian Matthew Dalek, author of the new book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. He describes the Birch Society as the organization that did more than any other conservative group to propel today's extremist takeover of the American right. The Birchers trafficked in conspiracy theories, opposed the civil rights movement, were anti-Semitic, opposed the U.N., and tried to impeach Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren. The group was founded in 1958 by Robert Welch, a wealthy retired candy manufacturer. The original members were white wealthy businessmen, including Fred Koch, the father of the Koch brothers, who funded right-wing groups and causes during our time. The John Birch Society was active from the late 50s through the early 70s. 
the Birch Society wanted to make inroads into politics, I think with an emphasis, at least early on, on local and state politics. How far did they get? They didn't get that far, although they did have a number of wins. Uh, They uh, were able to win uh, some local races for school boards. Welch, Robert Welch, the founder, had advised people to take over the local PTA. They were able to do that. There were a small handful of uh, Birchers who were members of Congress, Uh, John Russolo, Edgar Highstand. I think in total over, over its history, Birch members maybe had four or five members of Congress. Um, the Really, the greatest success, though, I think happened in the 1962 midterm campaigns and then in 1964. Uh, they were able to uh, help defeat Richard Nixon, who was running uh, – the former vice president running for California governor. Uh, they were able to back one of his opponents, a guy named Joe Schell, and – uh, take about a third of the primary vote, and that really hurt Nixon in the general election in 62. And then, of course, most famously in 64, many Birchers uh, loved Barry Goldwater. They saw him uh, as a, a true conservative. And Goldwater, of course, his famous proclamation from the San Francisco Cal Palace convention stage in 1964, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. Um that really spoke to uh, the Birchers, and they they thrilled to that. But um, even though they helped nominate Barry Goldwater, uh, many of them quickly soured on uh, – uh, some of them at least quickly soured on Barry Goldwater and other uh, more mainstream conservatives. And by the late 60s, uh, they were backing a third-party candidate, George Wallace – and by 1972, they were backing another third-party candidate, two actually Birch Society leaders, John Schmitz and Tom Anderson, uh, who uh, received about 1% of the 1972 presidential uh, vote. Uh, did not do very well, but they uh, uh, they were really on uh, the outskirts, in a sense, of uh, the two-party system at that point. The Birchers used hate and harassment to intimidate its political opponents. And um, I'd like you to describe some of their tactics. Yeah, I'll I'll give one example. Uh, Patricia Hitt, who I actually opened the book with her, she uh, was uh, an aide to Richard Nixon uh, and a very prominent supporter of Nixon. And she was on a Republican county committee in Southern California. And it turned out that the Birchers, uh, the Birchers hated Richard Nixon. Uh, they uh, targeted her, and she described in an oral history being the target of uh, late night phone calls harassing her, uh, phone calls at all hours of the day. She and her husband had to switch to an unlisted number. Uh, they were getting uh, hate mail, and she said that Birch members were calling people, voters in the community and calling her, branding her a socialist, a communist, a pinko. And she was defeated. And she described them actually as, quote, haters beyond anything I've ever seen in my life, essentially. Uh, So it gives you a sense into how they weaponized uh, politics, but not just electoral politics, 
Um, schools, for example, in uh, the Bitterroot Valley in Montana, uh, they uh, were harassing uh, principals and a superintendent. A number of teachers had to leave because, you know, the Birchers alleged that the school district was teaching uh, anti-American texts and uh, un-American ideas to the students. And so uh, apparently they were trashing a principal's lawn. So uh, the the direct action uh, oftentimes became uh, ugly and was really far removed from civil discourse. A really interesting chapter of your book is about how the John Birch Society was infiltrated by the Anti-Defamation League because of so much anti-Semitism within the Birch Society. Uh, it was a spy operation known as the Birch Watchers. Um, why, why did they see the Birch Society as a threat worthy of being infiltrated? Yeah, well, they did sometimes call it the Birch Watchers or the counter-reaction. Um, the Birch Society, to them, harked back to authoritarian movements, uh, both in Nazi Germany, but also McCarthyism. And to a lot of leaders of the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, in the 1950s and 60s, inaction was not acceptable because they had seen what had happened, of course, uh, when uh, brown shirts were allowed to basically uh, run amok. And, and they saw, and what happened was, the ADL was tracking a lot of people on the far right, including white supremacists, and they got wind of a new organization uh, that uh, was uh, becoming active, especially in the northeastern United States where uh, uh, the Birchers were being tracked. And, and the uh, ADL was looking for examples of anti-Semitism, of anti-black racism, threats of violence, uh, statements against democracy – and they wanted to expose what they saw as this kind of cesspool of hate. Um, and as one of the anti-defamation leaders said in the early 50s, we need, quote, ammunition in the war uh, uh, for democracy. And uh, they viewed it as a war to kind of safeguard democracy where Jewish Americans and other minority groups could be safe. So what did the Anti-Defamation League do to infiltrate the Birchers, did they send out representatives who um, pretended to be interested in joining the society, interested in becoming active in it? Yeah, I think all of the above. Uh, the agents had, they were agents. They had code names, Boss Number 2, Boss Number 4, short for Boston. Uh, I don't know their real names. Uh, some of them, one of them pretended to be a chapter leader from New Jersey who was just in town visiting headquarters to pick up literature. Other times they were interested in joining the society. Uh, some posed as white uh, supremacists or as out-and-out racists. Uh, so, uh, you know, really it ran the gamut. It's surprising that the FBI and its leader, J. Edgar Hoover, worked in part with the Anti-Defamation League to infiltrate the John Birch Society. It's surprising because, I mean, Hoover himself was so conservative and reactionary. Yeah, well, it is, it is surprising. I think, though, Hoover, Hoover was not a fan of Robert Welch, 
And he was not a fan of Welch's conspiracy theory that Eisenhower was a communist. So Hoover thought that the Birchers potentially could sow violence against political leaders. And the FBI was running its own program. Uh, it was much more engaged with tracking the left, but it's running its own program to infiltrate uh, the Birch Society. But I argue that the ADL was uh, more, I think, more aggressive, more sophisticated, and uh, and much more effective because they were able to expose a lot of the Birch, uh, a lot of the, the dark side of the Birch ideas and, and individuals. Some of the ADL agents posed as disgruntled Birchers in order to infiltrate white supremacist groups and assess their ties to the Birch Society. So tell us some of the things that are revealed in the ADL documents about this operation that you got access to. Tell, tell us about some of the more amazing things that you learned about the Birchers and about white supremacist groups. Well, uh, there's a, a lot of stuff. Uh, the uh, ADL found out that um, the Birchers were um, uh, going to a gun store and purchasing a large uh, caches of weapons. Uh, one of them was uh, very troubled by it. Uh, there were uh, uh, instances of uh, Birch members giving speeches or talks in which, for example, they said that uh, uh, Buchenwald, the victims there, the bones found there, were actually U.S. soldiers killed by Soviet communists, not Jewish victims of the Holocaust. And so the ADL uh, looked at all this information, looked at, for example, uh, white supremacists funding the Birch Society, and they uh, said this is an anti-Semitic group. Uh, they are um, – they're, they're – you know, another Birch was passing out uh, protocols of the uh, learned elders of Zion or, or a version of it. Uh, so there was a lot of uh, elements of uh, hate and, and intimations of violence that they uncovered and that deeply distressed them. The ADL fed some of their findings to the press. Um, why did they do that and how effective was it? Well, the ADL was very sophisticated and and I think very effective in how it um, sort of branded the Birch Society as anti-democratic and bigoted. And they produced, the ADL produced its own books and pamphlets, but it also recognized that the media, the mass media, was a great communications tool. And so they, they worked the press kind of like a, an ath, a athlete jawboning a referee. And, uh, and they were able to help uh, plant stories, essentially, or feed reporters stories about Birch activities. Uh, Birchers were doing a phone tree harassing uh, people uh, in their community. And, and the ADL was able to, to help push that story into the public bloodstream. Um, now, uh, not all reporters and editors were sympathetic to what the ADL was uh, was selling, uh, and and so it wasn't as if you know it wasn't like they were conspiring per se. Uh, but the ADL was, a, I think, a significant source, especially for a lot of lo local newspapers, uh, and the ADL uh, was able to get a lot of uh, damaging uh, bits of dirt on the Birch Society into the public space. Let's take a short break here, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is historian Matthew Dalek, author of the new book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. We'll be right back after a short break. This is Fresh Air.
Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. Medical emergencies, travel delays, canceled flights, anything can happen when you travel. That's why more than 70 million American travelers choose Allianz Travel Insurance to help them with headaches along the way. Get a quote and learn more at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Scholastic with Hummingbird by Natalie Lloyd. Now in paperback, Hummingbird is a funny, magical tale about Olive, a girl with brittle bone disease who refuses to let her disability stand in the way of adventure. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org elections. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with historian Matthew Dalek, author of the new book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. The John Birch Society originally was organized into chapters of no more than 20 people. What was the logic behind that? Well, part of the logic was that they were modeled after communist cells. And, and they were an anti-communist group. So that's, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think Welch and some of the other founders were fairly open about how they would uh, uh, mimic, mime some of the, the tactics of their enemies, which they thought were quite effective. I mean, they thought that communists had succeeded in taking over much of the United States. So they wanted to uh, steal a page from their playbook, so to speak. So I think it also, though, speaks to the strategy around secrecy, the idea of control from the top, right, that Welch and the dozens of people in headquarters wanted to have control. The way they did this was anytime a chapter hit 20 people, a new chapter had to be formed, and the chapters were not allowed to talk to each other. So the idea was that chapters could not get into fights with one another, they couldn't overlap, that it would all be kind of controlled from the top. It didn't work out that way in practice, but that was the theory, at least, or one of the ideas behind uh, uh, the case. The John Birch Society basically ceases being active in 1972. What are some of the things that contributed to its conclusion? Yes. Yeah, so the Birch Society, you know, it still exists. So it didn't really, it starts to, to fade uh, as an organization in the early 70s, uh, two things, I think, uh, contributed to its demise. One was the pushback from uh, liberals, groups like the Anti-Defamation League, uh, the NAACP, uh, the mass media, uh, politicians uh, from both parties. I do think that they had an effect. Uh, the second thing, though, uh, was that the Birch Society became more radical and more beset by internal uh, dissension. And uh, it had more white supremacists, uh, more violent individuals, and it burned itself out, essentially. You recently wrote an article in The Atlantic about how far-right movements die and what the Republican Party can learn from the John Birch Society about how to disassociate from extremists. So what do you think are the lessons for today? Well, I do think that institutions, as battered as they are today— institutions, whether they're government or non-government, can push back, and that pushback can have an effect. You know, there are about a 1,000 uh, uh, January 6th 
uh, uh, people who have been rioters, who have been convicted, and many of them are sitting in jail right now. You know, that, I think, is impactful. So, uh, you know, democratic society, civil society can have a way of pushing back against the extremes. Um, There are certainly uh, ways as well in which uh, uh, society can expose the level of hate. And I do think that what we have seen in, especially in the recent midterm, in the 2022 midterm elections, where a lot of the most extreme election-denying candidates lost in very winnable races, that was another form of pushback. So, uh, you know, I don't want to be too Pollyannish here, but the system, to some extent, is attempting to constrain extremists. And I think that there are at least uh, notes of hope. Uh, that uh, have echoes with the 1960s and 70s. Since your new book is about the John Birch Society and the radicalization of the American right, what are you particularly focusing on now in looking at the new presidential campaign? It's in its early stages, but it's starting to develop. Well, I'm very much interested in this question of containing extremism? And how can it be contained? You know, the assumption I think uh, uh, that I had, a lot of people had, is that if MAGA Republicans, Trump Republicans, if they lose enough elections, they might get pushed to the side because the only thing that will do that is if is, is enough defeats. And yet, you know, three arguably, as, as Chris Christie and others are saying, three election defeats in a row uh, and they're still not pushed aside. And so I am wondering to see how institutions, um, uh, the media, uh, Republican voters, um, and the Democratic Party and, and, and other individuals, you know, are they able to push to the side a little bit more to the margins the extremist ideas and tactics that we're seeing still atop the GOP. And I think that is an open question, but the 2024 campaign is going to be another test run and uh, and an important one. And then also down ballot, right? Who does the Republican Party nominate? Are they more election deniers, uh, extremists, uh, or are they uh, going to um, um, kind of be more mainstream and 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 push back on uh, these conspiracy theories. So, you know, it's a, a fraught uh, moment, but uh, I'm watching um, um, to see and, and, you know, we don't know if Trump's going to be the nominee. And of course, that's that's really an important test. Matthew Dalek, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Terry. Thank you. Matthew Dalek's new book is called Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. After we take a short break, John Powers will review a new French crime film that swept the French equivalent of the Oscars. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. 
For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into over 40 themes to choose from. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Visit schwab.com slash thematic investing. This is fresh air. Like everything everywhere all at once in Hollywood, the new French film, The Night of the Twelfth, won all of that country's top awards. It tells the story of a murder investigation that starts off looking easy to solve and winds up being anything but. Our critic at large, John Power, says it's one of those movies that uses a crime to reveal larger truths about society. The world is a big, unruly, ambiguous place, which helps explain the boundless appeal of murder mysteries. Whether it's Hercule Poirot exercising his famous little gray brain cells, are all those CSI teams extracting DNA samples, mysteries offer the reassurance of seeing the messy realities of life get sorted out. When the murderer is caught, we feel that order is, at least temporarily, restored. Of course, in reality, things don't always work out so happily. The reverberations of this fact rumble through The Night of the Twelfth, a skillfully turned French crime picture that swept the César Awards, the French version of the Oscars. Made by veteran director Dominic Moll, the movie is adapted from the work of Pauline Gaynor, who spent a year following members of the Paris police. Focusing on a single real-life murder investigation that she covers, Moll has created a film that keeps looking like the conventional police procedural that it actually isn't. The action has been transposed to the picturesque alpine city of Grenoble, where a vibrant student named Clara is walking home one night when a faceless man steps out of the darkness and sets her on fire. As it happens, this takes place on the very day that a police officer named Johan, played by a glum-faced Bastien Mouillon, has taken over the local homicide squad. Along with his bearded older sidekick Marceau, terrifically played by Bouli Lanaire, Johan sets about doing what the police do in seemingly every cop show, examining the corpse, gathering forensic evidence, informing distraught loved ones, and questioning suspects. As it happens, there are a few, for Clara has had a series of sexual relationships with guys who really weren't all that nice. These include a bartender who was cheating with her on his girlfriend, a rapper who's written a song about setting Clara on fire, and a convicted domestic abuser 20 years her senior. Johan and his crew interrogate them all, but as time passes, he grows increasingly haunted by his desire to bring Clara's killer to justice. But we know something he doesn't. You see, Mala's told us up front that 20% of French homicides never get solved, and that this case is one of them. 
Indeed, the night of the twelfth belongs to the category of mysteries about the failure to solve a crime. A fascinating subgenre that includes the great Sicilian police novels of Leonardo Shasha, David Fincher's film Zodiac, and Bong Joon-ho's Memories of Murder, the best cop movie ever made. Such stories replace the familiar satisfaction of seeing the murder solved with an exploration of the personal costs of failing to do so. Guilt, obsession, and a rending sense of futility embodied in this film by Johan, a dry, monk-like figure who constantly pedals his bike in furious circles around the local velodrome. He's not the only one with a feeling of futility. You sense the incessant grind of police work in all the members of his team, from the gallows humor with which they face the latest grisly sight to their reasonable complaints about broken equipment and endless paperwork. We fight evil by writing reports, says Marceau, a sensitive man who wanted to teach French literature, but wound up as a cop who quotes the poet Verlaine and dreams of a different life. What makes this particular investigation so difficult is that, Johann thinks, something is amiss between men and women. Without ever hammering away at it, the story is a study in misogyny. Marked by sexual attitudes that run from contempt to crazed infatuation, any one of the suspects could have murdered Clara, who was killed, says her friend Nani, simply because she was a girl. The suspect's outlook finds an echo in the jokey, hyper-masculine homicide squad, one of whom suggested it's not surprising that a young woman who keeps hooking up with bad boys might wind up getting killed. Now, The Night of the Twelfth is merely a solid movie, not a great one. But it shows that French cinema, which has tended to lag in awareness about race and gender, is catching up with the ideas of the Me Too era. It suggests that what makes this murder case especially interesting is not who done it, but the sexual politics underlying the crime and the investigation. As the first female detective in Johann's division tells him, isn't it weird that most crimes are committed by men, and mostly men are supposed to solve them? John Powers reviewed the new French film, The Night of the Twelfth. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, our guest will be Sarah Bareilles. She was just nominated for a Tony for her performance in the Broadway revival of the Sondheim musical Into the Woods. The cast recording of the show just won a Grammy. She wrote the songs for the musical Waitress and starred in the show. She's also one of the co-stars of the TV sitcom Girls 5 Eva. I hope you'll join us. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham. Our engineer today is Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shurrock, Sam Brugger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Bodinato, Teresa Madden, Thea Chaloner, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Seth Kelly directed today's show. Fresh Air's co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. With benefits kicking in as close as 100 miles from home, you can protect your travel plans whether you're driving across state lines or flying cross-country. Learn more at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. 
Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts.